Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Chapter 8. As we continue our series in the book of Romans. Uh, Before we begin, a short announcement to make. We are uh, happy to announce that two of the three positions that have been opened up by Adam's and Jesse's departure have been fulfilled. Uh, Jamie Carter has been hired as our office manager to take Jesse's place. And Serena Mao has been hired as our music director to take uh, Adam's place. Serena is the one who's been leading us here this morning. And so we're very grateful for God's provision for these very capable women and their willingness to serve the church uh, in this way. The third position, the one that's not yet filled, is the youth director position. And we want to let you know that the elders are taking time to review the job description for that position before any decisions are made. And part of this process is getting input from you, congregation, and members of the youth group. And we plan to do this in two ways. First of all, we're going to send an survey by email to you, and uh, that will allow you to give your written response, input, opinions, and suggestions for the youth director position. And then afterward, we're going to have some kind of a public forum where we'll get together and have an open dialogue about the kind of person we're looking for to fill that position. And our hope is that that survey will be emailed in April sometime to be followed shortly thereafter by the public forum. I want you to know that your elders have been giving many long hours in working through these issues, and so uh, I would encourage you to give them your thanks for the hours that they're putting in, and of course, please pray for us as we continue to work through this and seek God's will on this matter. So it is indeed Paul's Sunday today, (laughs) and uh, it might surprise you to hear the topic of the sermon this morning. Uh, We're not going to have a kind of a typical Palm Sunday message. Instead, we're going to be uh, dealing with a topic that comes up in our text of Scripture here in Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30. And that topic just happens to be, in God's good providence, predestination. That's our topic today. And you might think, what in the world does that have to do with Palm Sunday? There actually is a a small connection because um, the passage that was read earlier for the call to worship, John chapter 12, when Jesus entered Jerusalem, which is what we're celebrating today, um, on his way to the cross to lay down his life for sinners, it's indicated there in the text that he did so in fulfillment of a prophecy uttered by the prophet Zechariah many centuries before. And what Zechariah prophesied is that Jesus would enter Jerusalem riding on a donkey. And that's exactly what happened. Jesus got on a donkey and came in Jerusalem exactly as God foretold it. And we see there that God is sovereign over everything, even down to the tiniest details, even how Jesus would enter into Jerusalem. And that really is the essence of what we're talking about when we consider the doctrine of predestination. We're talking about God's sovereignty, his control over all things. Now, that might sound a little intimidating to some, but if you look at your quote at the top of the order of worship, I think it's very helpful for us to think of God's sovereignty in this way. 
Joy is a settled certainty that God is in control. That's where our joy comes from. And knowing that things aren't happening in a random happenstance way, but in accordance with the good plan of a good God. Two cautions before we get into this. Two things that we need to seek to avoid. One is the overemphasis on the doctrine of predestination. There are some who kind of get overly agitated about this doctrine, either to support it and try to get everybody to believe like they do on it, or to deny it because of uncomfortable implications of the doctrine. And an example of this would be the relationship between two men named George Whitfield and John Wesley. Probably most of you have heard of Wesley, maybe not everybody has heard of Whitfield, but they ministered in the 1700s, and they were powerful preachers of the gospel. And under their leadership, many people came to faith, and revival broke out. But those two men divided rather bitterly, quite frankly, over the issue of predestination. For many years in their life, they had such contrary opinions that they allowed it to get in between their personal relationship. And it's a very sad thing. And we don't want that to happen here. particularly in our life groups as we talk about this issue. So we want to be gracious and humble in the way we deal with this doctrine. We don't want to overemphasize it. But we also don't want to underemphasize it because some people, because of those kinds of conflicts that I just described, can tend to ignore the doctrine, even act like it's not even in our Bible. I never heard about predestination until I was in my 30s, and I'd been in the church all my life. Some in the church are kind of embarrassed by this doctrine and refused, refused to talk about it. And I think that's um, not wise because it is in our Bible. And God put it in our Bible in his wisdom. He wants us to know about it. He wants us to be blessed by it. And that's what I hope you'll find today as we consider this doctrine. So here's really the central question. If you haven't really thought about predestination much, you might not know really, really what is the issue. And the issue is, is basically this. Really two questions regarding our salvation. Is it true that God predestines or chooses people because of the faith that they have? Or is it the case that people have faith because they've been predestined? That's that's pretty much it. What's the driving force? Is, Is God just merely responding to something we're doing Or are we responding to something that God has been doing? What is the decisive factor in our salvation? Is it an act of God or an act of man and women? Another way to say it is just how how much in control is God really? And so our passage here, verses 28 through 30 in Romans 8, you'll see that this subject comes up. And what I hope you find as we read this and consider this topic is that this this is a good doctrine. This is something to be glad about. And that's why I'm titling this sermon, The Good Doctrine of Predestination. This is not given to us so that we can dread it or fear it or become angry about it or divided over it. God has given it to us for our good and for our joy. So let's stand and read this passage, Romans 8, 28 to 30. Picking up where we left off last week as we go through Romans, verse 28. And we know 
that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who were called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Father, would you help me by your spirit to handle this topic in a careful and appropriate way? And I pray that you would give these dear people the grace to respond in faith to the truth of your word in a way that would encourage their spirits and give them a deeper and more profound love for you and all that you've done for us in your gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, it seems a proper way to begin this topic would be to seek to define it. So that's the first point, defining predestination. What, what is it? What does the Bible teach about it? And we're going to begin with verse 28, which is a verse that probably all of you are familiar with. It's one of the most famous verses in the Scriptures, one of the most treasured verses in the Scripture, and it says this, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. So what is this stating? First of all, it's stating that all things, it's a very key phrase in this verse, all things, it's a very universal statement, very comprehensive statement, all things without exception that have happened in your life either 10 years ago or two months ago or this morning, all things are being weaved together in God's providence for your good. That includes the good things. That goes without saying, right? Good things can be used for your good, although we'll find out in a moment that's not necessarily always the case. But the bad things too. The bad, disappointing, frustrating, sorrowful, grievous things that happen to us. God is so in control that he's able to weave these things together for your good. Now, this verse is not saying, let's be very careful, it's not saying that bad things are good, and it's not saying that bad things are not as bad as they seem. The purpose of this passage is not in any way to minimize your sorrows, or your disappointments, or your pains. Cancer is a very bad thing. Verbal, physical abuse of children and spouses is a very bad thing. Miscarriages are bad things. This passage is not trying to trivialize the sorrows that we go through. Instead, what this passage is saying is that God is so much in control that even these things that are so bad, God has a way of turning them into blessings on a personal basis. That means that the things that have been bothering you the most, a job that you've lost, a a girlfriend or boyfriend that broke up with you, a, a failed exam, certain dreams that have never come true for you, God is working on those things, using those things for your good. And as a church, I think it's helpful for us to think 
through this verse and apply this verse to our situation. We're having some financial issues here and some difficulties before us. God is going to use our financial struggles for our good as a church. Adam and Jesse are beloved servants of this church for 13 years, have taken a position in St. Louis, and next Sunday will be their last Sunday, and that's hitting a lot of us very hard, but God says he's going to use that also for the good of this church, for the good of this community. We live in a culture that is increasingly hostile and resistant to the church, to the things of God, to the gospel. God is even going to use that for our good as a congregation and as a church universal. So God is working all things together for good, but something else I want to point out about verse 28 is not just what is being stated here, but for whom. Because look what it says. We know that for whom? For those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Now here's kind of the, um, I don't know, maybe the difficult part of this verse. It's, it's a sweet verse and we love this verse, but there's something implicit here that's a little bit troubling, which is that God is not working all things together for good for everybody without exception. The ones for whom God is working together good things are those who love him, those who belong to him, those who are Christians, those who have faith in Jesus and have been redeemed. But those who are not Christians do not have this assurance that things are working together for their good. Even good things, even good things that happen to us can, in a sense, be used for our bad. For instance, you can see how this happens, and maybe you've been in a place like this in your life before you were a Christian, but sometimes when a number of good things happen, it has this way of turning us away from spiritual things. You know, when everything you touch is gold, when you have constant success, when everybody is constantly declaring how wonderful you are, when you're making a lot of money and you're moving ahead in your job, you know, it's very easy, isn't it, in those situations for us to become puffed up with pride, to become independent, to, for us to feel very self-sufficient, for us to think that really the only thing that matters is what I can gain in this life so that we become blinded to eternal realities. That happens very often. Sometimes when good things happen to people, it's not always for their good because sometimes they're used to blind and harden people's hearts. And so the principle that comes out of this is simply this. Good things can be bad for you and bad things can be good for you. That's what verse 28 is saying. Good things can be bad for you and bad things can be good for you. But kind of the question that's being begged in this verse, and I haven't even gotten to defining predestination yet, but I'm getting there. Verse 28 says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. And now the first question we ought to have when we read that is, what, what is good? What does Paul mean by good? What does the Holy Spirit mean by good? Because we can read all kinds of things into that. We can think, well, since all things are going to work together for good, I guess what that means is that all my dreams are going to come true. I guess that means that whatever I put my hand to and whatever I devote myself to, I can do it. I can do anything. 
I guess that means that if I just kind of keep my head up and have a basic attitude of general optimism about my life, that everything will work out. I'll get what I want. I won't be disappointed. Is that what this means? Is this a promise that you'll never have to suffer? That you'll never be discomforted? The good that Paul has in mind here is a good that is explained in verse 29. And so this is why it's so important. Here's a very basic principle of biblical interpretation. You must always interpret the Bible in context. You must always read the verses that come before and the verses that come after. We make grave errors when we just lift a verse out of a passage and use it for our own purposes without considering the context in which it has been placed. And it's absolutely essential for us to allow verse 29 in this passage to explain to us what verse 28 means. Verse 29 tells us the good that Paul has in mind. And you see that connecting word there at the start of verse 29, for. God works all things together for good for those who are called according to His purpose, for. So now he's going to explain to us, okay, what is this good? And the good that Paul has in mind here is that those that he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to, son, to, the, to his Son, to be like Jesus, so they'd be the firstborn among many brothers, and the ones that he predestined would be called, and those called would be justified, and those justified would be glorified. What Paul is saying here is that the good that God has in mind for you, and what God is working all things together for good for in your life, is your salvation. It's the total package of salvation that's being promised here. It's forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. It's the filling of the Holy Spirit. It's your constant conformity to the image of Jesus. It's a movement toward holiness and righteousness. It's a future resurrection of the body when Jesus comes again and life for all eternity on a new earth. That's the good that is in mind here. And everything in verse 28 that's being talked about, these all things that are working together for good, are always with that ultimate purpose in mind. But the interesting thing here is that Paul starts here in verse 29, those he foreknew, he also predestined. This also is part of the good that God has planned for us, his predestination. Predestination is good. It's a good thing because it's the first step that God takes in the process of saving sinners. Now, a tricky word, particularly in verse 29, and this is the word upon which really all the disagreement kind of depends or flows from, is the word foreknew in verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And so many people see that word foreknew, and they interpret it like this. They say, okay, yeah, I get it. God chooses or predestines those whom he foreknows will believe in him. That God looks ahead into history and he says, yeah, there's Johnny, and Johnny's heard the gospel, and I have really no desire to save Johnny necessarily. I, I'm just going to wait and see what he does. 
And if Johnny believes, then I'll respond and make sure that he believes in Jesus and is saved. That's the way most people look at this verse, that God is acting in response to something that he sees that we are doing. That's the common way of understanding predestination. It might be the way many of you have thought about it and maybe still do, but I want to suggest to you that that's not a correct interpretation of what Paul is saying here. And one of the big problems with that view is that it makes it so that there's something in us that becomes the decisive factor in God's decision to save us. I don't know how we can get out from under that. If God is saving only those who he knows are going to do something, exercise their free will, believe, come to Jesus, however you want to describe it, then that means there's something in us that's drawing him to us, which seems contrary to the gospel. You know, we're told that salvation is by grace and it's a free gift so that no one would boast. If God is choosing people based on something that we're going to do, I mean, maybe you don't want to call it a good work, but it's something in us. It's something that's meriting God's attention. And the gospel doesn't allow us to take any credit whatsoever for our salvation. It is totally freely, from A to Z, top to bottom, 100% grace. And the doctrine of predestination is in the word to guard us from that temptation we have to want to take even a little bit of credit to say, at least I believed. It's really a wonderful thing because it keeps, you know, Christians kind of have this reputation for being so self-righteous. Well, there's nothing that will crumble your self-righteousness more than this particular teaching. Because now you cannot say, well, can't believe so-and-so over here who's who's an atheist hasn't believed. I'm just so glad that I had the good sense to believe. I'm so glad that I made the right decision. I'm so glad that I am not doing what this person is doing. If we hold that view that there's something in us that God is being pulled toward, that there's no way to avoid that conclusion. So, so what does Paul mean here? What does he mean by foreknowledge? I think what he has in mind here, it's not that he's knowing something we're going to do. It's that God knows us in an intimate and personal and affectionate way for all eternity. That's what Paul is saying. Those he foreknew, those those on whom he's always set his heart, those he has foreloved, we might say, those who have been the object of his affection for all eternity. Those are the ones he predestines. Not because they've done something, but because they've always been known by the Father. The Father has given them to the Son so that the Son would come into the world, lay down his life, and save them. Let let me show you a, a passage that I think supports this idea. Matthew 7, Jesus speaking here. He says, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then while I declare to them, I never knew you. What what does he mean there? I never never knew what you would do? Is that what he means by that? I never knew whether you would 
exercise your free will or not. No, it says, I never, I never knew you. I never had a relationship with you. I've never, never loved you. I've never been loved by you. That's what Jesus is saying. So here's the definition, finally, that I'm going to give to you of predestination. The way I'm defining it based on this passage is this. Predestination is God's gracious and sovereign plan to save those he has known from before creation and apart from anything he sees in us. So why does he choose us then if it's not based on anything that we do or are going to do? And that is a mystery that is God's right to keep to himself. I don't know why he chooses some. And doesn't choose others. But what a good thing to know that he's not choosing me based on anything that I'm going to do. Because speaking personally, if, if his choice of me is based on, on, on something in me, he's never going to choose me. God's intimately acquainted with my heart. I can't imagine any reason why he would choose me because of me. My only hope is that he'd choose me because of grace. And because of his eternal love for sinners. One, one other thing, Acts 13 48, I think this kind of sums it up very well. When the Gentiles heard this, when they heard the gospel, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And look at this phrase and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Notice how the appointment comes first the believing follows. It doesn't say, and as many believed were appointed, which is what we might expect if we hold the view that I expressed a moment ago, that God is predestining those that he knows are going to believe. No, people believe because they've been appointed. It's God's predestining, sovereign, gracious, electing work that is the driving force behind salvation. Best uh, example I use very often for this, there's a documentary called My Flesh and Blood that I saw years ago about a woman in California who adopted 11 special needs children, and children with, with very significant special needs, 11 of them. And um, the whole documentary is about the way this woman tirelessly and sacrificially cared for these children. And at the beginning of the documentary, she's quoted as um, explaining why she chose these particular kids. And she said this, she said, these kids were mine. With all their foibles and all their troubles, they were mine. That's what drove her to adopt and that's what drove her to chosen. And if you're a Christian today, what God says to you is this, you're mine. With all your troubles, with all your foibles, with all your sins, you're mine, and you've always been mine, and you'll always be mine. That's the essence of predestination and why it's so good. It's so good. Second thing, my second two points aren't going to be as long as my, my first, I promise, defending predestination, because I know this is raising all sorts of questions in your minds. This is not an easy doctrine to understand. I'm going to deal with, very briefly, three. Three very common objections to predestination. One is the idea that it discourages evangelism. If God's plan is already set, he's already predestined, who is going to be saved and who's not? 
Why share the gospel? It's already been worked out, right? It's already set from eternity past. So I don't have to do anything. I don't have to share the gospel. We don't have to preach the gospel. We don't have to send missionaries overseas. It's interesting how so many of these questions are answered even in this text. Look at verse 30. Verse 30 says, Those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. You see that word called? What Paul is saying here is that God doesn't just predestine people to salvation. Whomever he predestines, he also makes sure that they're called. And how are people called? They're called when people preach the gospel to them. They're called when missionaries go overseas and preach the gospel. They're called when people like you share the gospel with your neighbors and people in your workplace. They're called when preachers like me preach the gospel and people hear the good news that Jesus Christ has come, He died, and He's risen from the dead for sinners, and then people respond to that. That's the means by which God saves those that He predestines. It's weaved into this whole process. Don't separate what the Bible puts together. Those who are predestined will be called. Some of the most famous missionaries in Christian history, John Eliot, William Carey, David Livingstone, John Patton, many others. These are all men who had a very high view of predestination as I'm presenting it to you here. George Whitfield, I mentioned earlier, the great uh, evangelist, had a passion for evangelism. That was what he was all about, is going out in the fields and preaching the gospel to whoever would hear it. And many were brought to faith under Whitfield's ministry. And he was a man who believed passionately in this doctrine of predestination. Some of you know about evangelism explosion, um, evangelism curricula that has been used throughout the world. Um, D. James Kennedy was pastor at a PCA church in Florida for many years and had a passion also for evangelism. And uh, he would often be criticized for his methods. Not everybody likes exactly the way evangelism explosion is kind of designed and, and uh, um, promoted. And so he took a lot of heat for that for some people. Some people would come to him and you know, offer up this criticism, and Kennedy would say that whenever he would be criticized for EE, he would say, well, what's your plan for sharing the gospel with people? And very often they would say, well, I don't really have a plan. And Kennedy would say, well, um, uh, I like the way I do it wrong more than the way you don't do it right. Because he had a passion for evangelism. He wasn't going to pull back. He wasn't going to be reluctant. He wasn't going to hesitate, even if his methods were imperfect. So predestination does not discourage evangelism. Some say this, it eliminates choice. If God chooses us, then that must mean we don't choose Him. That, that means, I, I guess, nobody really chooses Christ. And some who hold this doctrine kind of get nervous when you talk about people making a choice. But let's look back at our text. Let's Look at verse 30 again. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. How is it that we're justified, friends? Justified by faith. Justification is always paired with faith in the New Testament. Predestination leads to 
calling, that is the gospel goes forth, which also then necessarily leads to a person then placing faith in Jesus so that he or she may be justified. A choice is absolutely essential if anybody is going to be saved. And we see this packaged up very nicely in this verse, verse 30. 2 Thessalonians 2.13 puts this together very well also. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, Paul says, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you, there's predestination, as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. This is the means by which God brings those that He has predestined to salvation. They're called through the gospel, and they must believe in the truth. And that leads to the third objection that we sometimes hear, and that is that predestination can breed insecurity. It can breed a kind of fear. That is, it can create in your mind this kind of terrifying question for some people. What if I'm not predestined? What if I'm not chosen? And this is one of the reasons people get agitated by this. And they begin to worry about that. And it's kind of sad that we get too caught up in that question because it's the exact opposite of Paul's purpose in this passage. He is not writing this to us so that we would be filled with fear. He's writing this to us to assure us. Look again at verse 30. I'm going to show you something remarkable here. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Now, if you're a Christian, those events, predestination, calling, and justification, those things are in your past. If you're a Christian, those things have already happened. God predestined you. He sent the gospel to you. You believed. You're justified. And that's why these things are written in the past tense. But the one thing that's future for you is your glorification. We're not yet glorified. We're still waiting for Jesus to come back to finish our salvation and to glorify us. And yet, look how the verse ends. In those whom he justified, he also will glorify. It doesn't say that. It's in past tense. Those whom he justified, he glorified. It's like what Paul is saying is that the completion of your salvation is so certain, it's as if it's already been done. Even though it's future, Paul considers it past because God is so committed to finishing what he started in you. Your glorification is absolutely, completely and totally secure in God's sovereign, controlling, predestining grace. So, friends, if you're kind of worried about this question, am I predestined or not? That's not a question that you're responsible to answer. Am I predestined. Predestination is God's responsibility, not yours. Your responsibility is to respond to the gospel. Your responsibility is to believe upon the name of Jesus. You're hearing the gospel right now. You're being called, all of you right now. What I'm telling you is that God loves sinners and that he sent Jesus to die for sinners and that if you will believe on him this morning, you will be saved. That's true. That's absolutely true. You can bank on that. And if you put your faith in Jesus, 
That's the way you know you've been predestined. It's the only way to have any assurance you've been predestined. Not figuring out the decree of God, but placing faith in Jesus. Don't let this theoretical question get in the way of the very simple and direct call to repent and trust Christ. So, this doctrine should not breed insecurity in in any way. Quite to the contrary, it gives us assurance. So, let me quickly talk about delighting in predestination. This is is such a good doctrine. There are a, a number of things that we ought to do in response to this. Number one, this ought to fill our hearts with worship. This ought to make us get down on our knees and praise a a God who is this in control, this powerful, this sovereign. And in fact, that's exactly what Ephesians 1 says. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. That this should be the heart response to this doctrine. Not agitation and fear, but worship. Assurance, also, I've already said this, in this passage we have great reason for assurance in our salvation. There is an an unbreakable chain of salvation that starts in eternity past when God predestined us and looks to eternity future when we are fully glorified. And what this is basically saying is that because God's love never had a beginning, it will never have an end either. There's nothing that can interrupt it. There's nothing that can cancel it. There's nothing that can dissolve it. And as we get further into Romans chapter 8, we'll find that explained uh, more careful. And uh, one more thing, gratefulness. Gratefulness. It's, it's a hard doctrine for sure to think that before creation, God did not save everybody. That, that's, that's difficult to think he did not set his heart on every person. But friends, if you're a Christian, take comfort. He did set his heart on you. He did put his heart on you. I mean, think of that. Back in the Civil War 200 years ago, God had you in mind. Go back to the Reformation, back in the 16th century. God had you in mind. Back in the Middle Ages, centuries ago, God was thinking of you. Not just you, but everybody he was going to save. And when God sent his son into the world, and Jesus went to the cross and bled there and died there and suffered there, God was thinking of you. Because from centuries before even that, he put his heart on you and decided to save you. This is good. This is good. Be encouraged by this, friends. And be respectful when you talk about this in your life groups. And let this build us in our gratitude, in our assurance, in our worship of our great and sovereign God. Father, we thank you and praise you that you have chosen to save sinners. Thank you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for choosing to save me. Thank you, Lord, that a love that has no beginning also has no end. What a glorious promise that is. In Jesus' name we pray.